ka whawhai tonu mātou, ake, ake, ake. We will fight forever. E nā mana e nā reo, nau piki mai, nau kake mai ki te hotaka nei a te ahi kā, ko Maraia Rakurakua hau. Ko Justin Maria hau, ko tēnei te wahanga e hāpai nei i ngā kaupapa Māori o te motu i runga i te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It's Radio New Zealand iwi mā, coming up. He stands 6 foot 6, is over 120 kilos and he's only 23 years old. Yet James Mihaire no Rangitane is pretty well relaxed about his recent win as the Oceania heavyweight and open men's champion in sumo wrestling. Justine caught up with James, also known by his wrestler name Ty Cade, at where else but a gym. So your your goal is to shop the muscle into... And you'll feel it straight away. So how many of those did you do? Oh, right. <laughs> it was about six at the most. But um, How important is cardio? cardio so it's probably not... As Im- I, must, I must admit, I'm, I'm pretty um, shocking on the cardio part. <laughs> I'd rather do the weights than do the cardio, but yeah. I'll probably do about 10 minutes before and 10 minutes after. James Mihaire coming up later on in the show. The 1881 invasion of the Taranaki settlement of Parihaka by the New Zealand Constabulary, as it was known then, is recognised as the first recorded account of passive resistance in the world. That's before Mahatma Gandhi, folks. And that's because the Tangata Whenua, followers of Tohukākahi and Te Whiti met guns with loaves of bread and kids singing. And it's this that's the subject of a book written by Rachel Buchanan, the Parihaka album, reviewed by Hedia Hammond. I found it very hard to start the book, was that I thought I was going to be reading the thesis, and I went, oh no, oh no. And then when I opened it, it was it was a, a laying out of a plan. And then there were some really beautiful mm. pieces of her thoughts. And I thought, no, no. So I stuck in there and I said, no, read it again. And there was some lovely... Um, in that first chapter, it was when I came across something that she said about the the narrative of the destruction, the survival of the land, and it was like, oh, that's lovely. I'm going to stick in here. And it was those little um, gems that kept me sticking in. That's what's coming up over the next 50 minutes. Stay locked. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Mariah Rakraku, and this is Te Ahika. Any mention of the Wellington music scene and it's inevitable Fat Freddy's drop will come up. There's always been the core crew of Chris Faiwumu, Moo and Dallas Tamaira and their manager Nicole Duckworth, joined over the years by Ian Gordon, Toby Lang, Tihi Manakur, Joe Lindsay and Scott Towers. And remember, there was Warren Maxwell before he cruised off to The Little Bushman. But where to begin, eh, in backgrounding this lot? Their tours, whether in Lee or London, are always sell out, and their fan club is immense. And as an independent label, they have done extremely well commercially here in Aotearoa. And of course, with all that recognition, there's the awards, and they've won some pretty major ones. Their first debut album, based on a true story, was voted the Worldwide Album of the Year at Radio 1 Giles Peterson's Worldwide Music Awards in 2005. Now, Fat Freddy's released their second studio album, Dr. Boondigger, and the big BW last year. Here's Dio Carroll with her take on the album. Uh, tēnā tātou katoa, uh, ko Dio Carroll tōku nei ingoa, a huri tēnei no Taranaki, ko ngā tirua nui, ko ngā ruhinerangi, me te atiawanga iwi. Uh, tēnā koutou. 
Um, so Dee, let's talk about Fat Freddy's Drop. What do you think of them as a, as a, as, as a band, as a group? From the outset. I think I was sort of first introduced to their music when they brought out that song Hope. Um, that was my first introduction to, to Fat Freddy's and that's sort of probably my favourite song of Fat Freddy's and since then after they released um, Based on a True Story in 2005, um, yeah, they basically took me over. Love Fat Freddy's Drop. Um, <laughs> I think for me though, I think it's the, the vocals that really kind of draws me in. Um, Dallas Tomato is the man. Voices, I think it's been described in, by other reviewers as really soulful. Um, and I think because he's also Māori, it's, it's nice to, you know, have that connection. <laughs> For me, they're quite an original band. Um, their style, their musical style, and also them as um, people and their personalities, um, they're quite, quite original and they sort of epitomise what um, the music scene is like in Wellington. You know, started off... Yeah. Real local, just jamming, um, then doing some live gigs at the Matterhorn and boutique bars around Wellington, and then next minute they're touring over Europe and you know got two two albums out. I think they're they're really original. Okay, so let's turn our attention to the latest CD, um, Doctor Boone Digger and the Big BW. It's an amazing album, and I think it is quite different to based on a true story for me. I've got some favourites on this CD, and I think I like. Pretty much every song, maybe I don't listen to one of the songs as much as the rest, but every song is enjoyable and every song has kind of got a um, uh, a mood that it gives me. Like if I'm studying, I like to listen to, um, I think it's The Raft and just some of the relaxed um, wayata. Um, all the sounds are quite multidimensional. And then again, Dallas Tomato's voice is just interweaved throughout all of the songs. And I think it just, yeah, just okay, makes so it. explain to me what you mean by multidimensional. Like, for example, Shiver Man, that's one of my favourite songs. It just starts off with this fat-ass beat and then it just builds up and builds up and all these little sort of sections are added on and then it finally gets to this point where it drops into the horn section that's like the favourite bit I think it's like 7 minutes, 10 seconds when it drops it's, yeah, I always like sort of fast forward it to there and then, but like no matter where you're, what mood you're in when you're listening to it, you can always kind of hear something different yep. there's heaps of different sounds to kind of draw in
So I think they're quite known for that, aren't they? Because um, I listened to the album um, in its entirety. There's, uh, there's nine tracks um, on the album, and the first one, the duration is 10 minutes 35. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, I know that with um, based on a true story, there are quite a few tracks on there um, that are quite long. So for someone like me who's like wondering where the vocals are going to kick in, I mean, for me, the vocals kicking in, you know, at a reasonable time in the song, I mean, that's um, that's what I prefer. Yeah. So I'm not really quite into the whole seven-minute nothing but um, yeah. layered um, instruments and horns and, and, and keyboard. Um, well, I've seen them live, and that's where they really bring out those, like, 20-minute long intros with no singing. And I'm sort of like you. I do enjoy having the voice, and especially Dallas singing. I'd like him to kind of come in in the first... 45 seconds. Sometimes it doesn't happen with some of their tracks. Except for track one, Big BW, not really a fan of that one, but every other track, um, it's musically like nice to listen to while you're waiting for the, for the lyrics to start. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's too long, but um, I think they could probably work on that to make it a bit sooner. Yeah. I think for musos, it's just that's sort of their, their singing, so to speak, and their, their time to really pull out the solos and and shine. Yeah. Whereas the vocals, a lot of a lot of songs are based around the vocalist. When when it comes to musos and bands, and I think especially you know, Wellington sort of bass bands, it is about the music and the um, the instruments and kind of the musical talent coming through the instruments. Okay, D. We'll continue our review of um, Fat Freddy's Drop by Dr. Boondigger and the Big BW. Can you make any comparisons of these artists with any others? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about that and. If I had to say anything or any group would be probably Black Seeds, but um, I sort of put them in a whole like, level on their own, and that's just because, like as I was saying before at the start, they're so original in the way that they present and express their their musical talent. Um, that yeah, I, I can't really put the next benchmark. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're they're right up there, eh? I know. Preconceptions of the group and their music. So, had you heard them before and made any prejudgments before you heard Dr. Boondigger and the Big BW? <laughs> um, preconceptions. I think I think I sort of drawed on that before. That this, I sort of put them in this category of quite a unique funk um, roots dub group um, that you can't really compare to another group, but. Um, from from based on a true story from that album, I sort of they sort of set the bar for me in terms of where New Zealand music was was hitting, and so I've always been you know anticipating their next album. I think everyone has. I sort of thought, well, maybe there's a Kai theme to this <laughs> album because I mean, even in their Pull the Catch video clip, they're all like on a boat and gonna you know pull some ika out of the moana, which is totally in line with what they're singing about. But I think for lyrics, for me, um, 
I really enjoyed the raft because they talk about, um, I think, what was the line? Although my people may not be many, we are ready for the storm to come. And he sort of talks about, um, you know, being strong and being prepared and stuff. And without writing the words down and analysing them properly, um, I sort of, from when I listen to that song, I, I get a feeling of um, how Māori people kind of go through these struggles or other Indigenous people. And um, even though we're a minority, we've got to keep going and, you know, yep. staying together as one. I think he also uses that line. Do you, who was this album for? Hmm. Uh, I think it's for anyone who appreciates... Anyone who appreciates, well, A, New Zealand music, but to have uh, the experience of listening to live uh, instruments and a range of talented musicians who are just coming together and bringing into the fold a new kind of... Um, well, they're, they're paving the way for a new style of music. Um, I think they've been dubbed as um, Roots, Electrica, Techno, um, Dub reggae, uh, jazz, rhythm and blues. And like when I think about all those different genres, I think everything has a place in the album and in their, um, their previous albums as well. So I think anyone who's into those sort of genres of music would find something special in Boondigger. Yeah. Carol, nor Nasi Ruanui Mitiatiawa, who'll be back again reviewing music, and we end today's show with the camel from Dr. Boom Digger and the Big BW. In the publicity for her 2010 book, The Parihaka Album, Rachel Buchanan laments at how challenging and lonely it was for her writing in Australia about events in New Zealand that took place in the late 1800s. Weaving in her own personal whānau history, Buchanan seeks to shed light on the 1881 invasion of the Taranaki settlement Parihaka that is recognised as the first world-recorded site of passive resistance under the leadership of prophets Te Whitsiorongomai and Tohu Kākahi. But ended in 1881 when by force Parihaka was pillaged, destroyed and the prophets and their followers imprisoned in caves in the South Island. Over the years, poets Apirana Taylor and J.C. Sturm have written about the impact these actions had in devastating the community. And what started as a PhD thesis at Monash University in Melbourne has ended up as a book, and that transition, as you're about to hear, hasn't necessarily worked, according to reviewer Harriet Hammond, who is with Mariah Rakuraku. Kia ora, uh, ko whakapunaki te maunga, ko hangarorawa ko ruaki ture ngā awa, ko natikahununu te iwi, ko ha- Nā te hinihika te hapū, ko teranga te marae, ko Hiria Hammond taku ingoa. Tēnā koe Hiria Hammond? Tēnā koe marae. <laughs> o kia ora mō tō um, pōwhiri ki au i te pānui tēnei pokapoka, te Parihaka album. Um, nā Rachel Buchanan te kaitito o tēnei pokapoka. I tino harikoa au i, te, um, I tō pōwhiri ki au. Uh, I te wā e pānui au tērā pukapuka, e rangirua au mō te kōrero kei roto. 
ahakoa i tono pai te rawahi i tono pai te kōrero te whiti rawa ko tohu um, he rangirua au mō te hua kei roto i te pokapoka So pēhe o whakaaro mō te pokapoka? Uh, I tuwa e, e tīmata te pānui um, tuwa e tīmata au i te pānui he pokapoka mō nga academics tēnei he um, e whakatakoto ia nga he mahere kei te tīmatanga and ko takunei whakaro he pokapoka mō te tangata kei roto i te tō pokapoka tēnei so what you're saying, Hedia Hammond, as we're reviewing the Parihake album by Rachel Buchanan, published by Huia Publishers, is you think this book is more suited for academics rather than everyday people, lay people? E tahi o, o enei kei roto, um, e tahi wāhanga tino pai rau atu mō nga tangata, mm-hmm. e tahi mō nga academics. He ua ua i te timata tēnei pukapuka mō te wāhanga tuatahi, he uh, Maha ona um, fakaro mo te mahiri o te pokapoka. The plan they she laid out the plan of the book, which isn't something that I normally see in a book that a plan is laid out. Which is very much an academic way of. I, I, think, I mean, she does say at the out, uh, forefront that this is this is what was her PhD thesis, and it comes across like that too. I, I think that was my my prejudice in the starting and that's, that's why I found it very hard to start the book was that I thought I was going to be reading a thesis and I was oh no, oh no and then when I opened it it was it was a, a laying out of a plan and then there were some really beautiful mm. pieces of her thoughts and I thought no, no so I stuck in there and I said like, no, read it again and there was some lovely um, in that first chapter it was when I came across something that she said about the the narrative of the destruction, the survival of the land, and it was like, oh, that's lovely. I'm going to stick in here. And it was those little um, gems that kept me sticking in. However, when it re- reverted back to a thesis-like Styles. format where there was um, quite a lot of quotations to support um, inf- other information, I struggled a lot. So what's it about? I think it was confused, I think, because it it wanted to be a walk. It wanted to be a, a story about a walk of her life, um, something that was a seed that was planted in her childhood. Um, and she got bogged down in a lot of the history, which some of it was not so necessary and not we didn't need the depth of the research. So the history we're talking about is the history of Parihaka. The invasion of Parihaka in 1881 by the military. Yes. Yep. And there was, and she's done a, an amazing job at, at researching, at finding those photos, um, and laying it out, but laying it out in a very academic style. And like I said, the chapters that um, are from her heart are beautiful to read. You know what I found difficult is um, if I was to come to this and not knowing anything at all, uh, she's reeling off a whole lot of names of places and there's no map. 
There's no map that actually shows you where these places are. And I always have to know, what are you talking about? Where is this? Otherwise, it just ends up looking like a whole lot of names that mean nothing. And I thought that was a... um, that was an obvious error when it came to publication because I would have, I like to see maps of the places. How else do you get hooked in? Yeah, I think that um, for me, some of the names were familiar and some of the stories were familiar from people that I know yeah. from Taranaki. Um, and there were things that, but I think that you're right, to be able to visualise a map and to see where things that went on away from the, the pa, from Parihaka itself, and also to see, um, it was quite nice to see those photos of what Parihaka used to be. Yeah, and that's a, um, that's a chapter that's called Pictures. And in it she talks about how pictures tell a narrative, eh? They tell a story. And this is actually called, this book is called The Parihaka Album, which I'm guessing she named it that in reference to the original Parihaka Album, which, where those photos came yes. from. Yes, but it, it that got away from me as well. I was a bit disappointed in the in the quality of some of the photos. I know, I know. I I was the same. I was like, why does she use these images? Because they they're very they're poor qualities. They seem inappropriate. She's taken some. Um, she's got photos in there from the the exhibition, and I thought maybe it's a copyright thing again about not having, uh, not being able to access. A range mm. of images. I would have rather I would have rather have seen less photos but better quality, so that you weren't struggling to see what the photos were of. Um, they because they didn't add a lot to it. I I found them really distracting. I also found the name distracting. The Parihaka album when you, you got to have a look at the photos, it was like oh. But so is did it seem a bit mismatched? It was. I think it started off as a thesis. And then she may have thought, oh, no, this is a story that needs to be told. And it is a story that needs to be told. And when she told it in her words and wasn't cross-referencing, it was a story that I got quite hooked into from her personal level. Um, I and, and But that was, all, you know, like in the beginning, I, I read this thing that, that had a wee nod to her Māori background and then I didn't see any stream of that coming no. through until we got to those personal chapters. No, the, no. Um, the Dementia Ward. I liked that chapter. So tell me about the Dementia Ward. As I said, some of the chapters lost me, but this was a chapter that got me back into being interested about um, this book in particular, um, how some of her family had um, had kept up their Māori interests and kept... Um, a finger on the pulse of where things were for them. And apart from their names, she's said that you probably wouldn't be able to tell that they were Māori. Um, and there's her... The dementia wing is actually in, in direct reference to her grandmother, Rawinia Buchanan, who the ward, the wing and the hospital the that has home. been built oh, at, at Athletic Park. Park. So Athletic Park... Um, has in Wellington. And Wellington has been reverted back to Māori ownership and part of that is that they have built a rest home there and the dementia wing has been named for one of her relatives, which I think she's found very honouring. And um, and it certainly does sum up how I was feeling a wee bit about her acknowledgement to her Māoriness. 
that I it got lost within a cha- uh, within the first chapter that she she gave a wee nod to her um, to her ancestry and then and I think in academic fashion she didn't allow her personal feelings to um, to colour the research that she was doing. But what you're saying is that that's a bit that would probably hook in people other than academics. That's a bit that you could really relate oh, to that was that, interest that made it interesting. It did make it interesting and that was what got me back into the book because I struggled through some of the chapters. Um it was, was not, it the content or the structure? The structure. There was a lot of repetition with quotations to support certain facts. Um I think that you know, from and I'm I'm not an expert on books or writing books, and I take my hat off to anyone who can keep it together to put together 250 pages. Um, I think that maybe some editing would have helped this book. There was a lot of content that, as I said, was repeated repetitive. That we didn't need to hear several times, um, if. Maybe the, that first chapter had been a wee bit tighter and more friendly. Um, I wouldn't have struggled so much to start the book, which you know you're aware of that I I did have a lot of trouble starting it. There were um, there was so there were lots of interesting things in here. I loved the stories about the plough. Um, mm. The ploughman. You know what that made me think of? That made me think of the poem by Apirana Taylor about being, uh, I think the last line in the poem is all for ploughing their land and it's about all the arrests, all the rapes, the murder, everything and at the end, you know, you had all these people at Parihaka getting arrested and thrown in prison and getting exiled for ploughing, for merely turning the soil. Their own soil. You know what I found interesting was the thing about nicknames. Do you remember that bit? That um, I didn't know. And then, of course, it made sense because I thought about it in my own context of my my iwi and my whanau, are how um, tamariki, you know, how we remember an event by naming a child after an event. Yes. Or after something that's, yeah, after an event. And how some of the kids had nicknames that remembered some remembered an and event. So, and some of those names persist mm. in the names so of some of the marae as just, well. If I just bring up an example. So children were called totoi, toto for short, which means dragging, a reference to the way their forebear was dragged around a paddock because he wouldn't stop ploughing. Other children were named te iwi herehere, literally imprisoned people. Tikiri haihai, lashing, matenaro, lost death or hidden death, and naru keruke, discarded body. Mm. I mean, that's, that's powerful stuff, eh? Some of those names persist to this day. And then in one of the chapters, she goes on a hiria to uh, talk about Lieutenant Bryce, who had some history in, the, in Taranaki, and then he ended up leading the cav- the cavalry that had the gun uh, focused on the pa at Parihaka in 1881. And in 1868, he had been involved in the murder. Um, men under his command had been involved in murdering those kids the at children. the wall shed. And that appeared that there were two stories, that he 
was there when the children were killed. And another story that came out later was that he arrived later um, after this event and um, didn't seek to cover it up, but certainly... Um, didn't make the men accountable no. for what they had done. So he ended so forever up forever he was associated with that event. Yeah. And he ended up um, getting the nickname Hetangata Koruru, mm. a murdering a man, man. Mm. and which followed him throughout the whole time that he was involved in Taranaki during that time. So by the time he turned up uh, at Parihaka during the ploughing, during the invasion, the people there were well aware of who he was. And see, that's something I never knew. There were there were lovely little um, snippets like that throughout the whole book and that made it worth also ploughing through some of the quite hard chapters with all of the references. Did you feel weighed down by it? I did, I've got to say. When some of the chapters, the acknowledgements at the end of the chapters were longer than the chapters itself, um, I, I did wonder who this book was written for. I've seen it advertised in one of the kids' um, bookshops and it was like, no, this isn't a book for children. No. This wouldn't be a book that I'd sit down and say that I would enjoy just reading. But I would say that this would be a book that if you were um, wanting to find out about Taranaki, if you were wanting to, um, especially Parihaka, this would be a book that you would be able to um, take and get good, solid references from for that information. Had you read Dick Scott's Ask That Mountain? No, I haven't. Are you familiar with that? I am familiar with it. I yeah. have it on my bookcase, but, that, <laughs> but osmosis isn't working. I yeah. am going to have to open it. Because <laughs> uh, I guess she some, references that heavily. In she here. she does, and she also references Hazel Riseborough. And what I found myself thinking is, uh, where are the voices of the tangata whenua? Mm. Uh, you know, there's. You know, if you're going to do a comprehensive story on Parihaka, where is the oral recording you did with people from there? Or, I mean, she says, you know, she's based in Melbourne and stuff like that. But I guess it's the thing about, you know, so we get so much history written about us from an external point of view that sometimes you want to hear the internal voices, you know, the insider voice. I did say in the first chapter that she did go and talk to Huirangi and. That um, yeah, that doesn't come through. I guess when when you are away, it is easy to be removed. And I guess that you know some of that stuff that I've already said. That when she spoke from her heart, and you you got those stories from her, that was really interesting stuff. I warmed to that. But when you're sitting away, writing away. That also came through, and I wasn't as interested. You know what I didn't know? I didn't know that Toho and Tefiti had a falling out. I didn't know that either, but it makes sense that if you're living so intensely and there are so many hardships, that there will be a, a divide of... You know, of philosophy, philosophy, of, of just, just um, how it is. You know, some resources. people are sick of the hardship. They want to let go mm. of it. You know, let's have a new way of doing things, you know, all of that. Yeah, I just, and it does make sense. And it also makes sense that it wasn't, it isn't so widely known. I mean, no, it exactly. is about, it, 
Parihaka is about unity. It's a place that we, and my children have gone and spent time and love um, as part of the Parihaka Peace Festival, which celebrates that. And that's something that seemed to have been prophesied, um, that there would be a, a new dawning for Parihaka and that things would return to that prosperous time. And it certainly, after reading about how well populated it was, that it wasn't a par, it was a township. Mm. Um, that had a bank. Who would have thought? <laughs> I didn't, the know. first gas lights in the whole of New Zealand. <laughs> there was, and there was this really lovely quote um, in here about ghettoising tradition. And I, I just loved that, that... There are extensive modernisations of Parihaka, a project that challenges many still potent ideas in which authentic Indigenous people must remain in a ghetto of tradition, an ossified place where no new traditions can be invented. And I just so identified with that. That is, you know, Māori today are being told oh, you hold on to those traditions and it's going to keep you there. But when you try to change your place in life or you know, modernise those traditions, because just because we've got them doesn't mean we're stuck with them forever, yeah. then you're accused of being something you're else smiling. again. And that, that isn't a new thought and it's not a new accusation, but it was a very lovely turn of phrase. And as I have said... Those phrases are the things that kept me in this book. Hemihi tēnei kia koe e Hiria Hammond no Ngāti Kahungunu ki te wairua me ngā kōrero o te pukapuka nei. At our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahikar, you'll see details about all our te wete wete reviews and navigate yourself around our page. You'll see you can even join us on Facebook. Yes, folks, my resistance to Facebook has finally caught up with me. Parihaka has an annual international peace festival commemorating the prophets and their message of peace. That takes place at the beginning of each year, and go check it out. It's pretty neat, all right. James Mihaire, a.k.a. Ty Cade, is like the Rocky Balboa from the Rocky franchise of movies. He does give it all in the wrestling ring. That's sumo wrestling, by the way, the sport derived from the Japanese culture. And it was through his local gym that James ultimately took a liking to sumo wrestling. Many may wonder why. It's not exactly a sport most Māori get into, but when you look at James' physique, well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it, Justine? Aida, he sure is a big boy. We talked about wrestling, the Oceania Open men's title he won in Australia last year, and what his family think of his newfound fame. Kia ora, James. Kia ora. <laughs> now, James, um, if we could start our, our interview with um, um, your Māori, where were you born and, and raised? I was born in Invercargill, but um, uh, we moved up here when I was about, I think I was about two, oh. and yeah, I've been pretty much brought up in the Wellington region. In the Wellington region. Yeah. Now, we're in um, uh, Petone. Were you born uh, brought up around this area? or uh, Actually, Stokes Valley. Oh, Stokes, yeah, Stokes, Stokes Valley. Valley so, James, I um, read out your recent um, titles there, 2009 and this year. I, I mean, are you proud of your achievements? Oh, I'm definitely proud. Anytime you win anything, it's it's a um, like a real big accomplishment. Like, I, when I set out to do it, I I just had that mentality that even though I was going over there, uh, when I went to Brisbane, I wasn't coming, I wasn't going over to lose. I wanted to bring something back, or I wanted to try my hardest. 
And then when we brought something back, yeah, that was, I don't know. It was just really big. So you were there not to muck around, really? You were nah, there. we were there. It was all business. You had to eye on the prize. The, the Australians were trying to scare us. They were trying <laughs> to use the tactics. Of, there was one guy they reckon that um, couldn't be beaten. and um, Really? We beat him in the in the open, I mean, not in the open, sorry, the uh, team event. Is there a bit of, um, you know, how when boxers come up against each other and they have that whole media release, is there a bit of trash talking? Uh, sumo is very um very traditional very formal yes like even um before the um before the event you actually meet all the contestants and you actually have training together have a meal so it's a real it's a real um how do you how do you put it yeah just there's a lot of respect there yeah that's cool. There's yeah. no showboating. Nah, there's no showboating. There's a little bit of a yeah after you, <laughs> after you win, but you're not supposed to. Boast or anything. Yeah, you're supposed to just bow and, <laughs> yeah. and walk away gracefully. Well, I mean, because it's derived from the Japanese culture, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. how did you? Where did the journey begin for you in terms of getting into this type of sport, sumo wrestling? Um, it started with um, <coughs> it started with wrestling because on 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 the other side, I'm a pro wrestler, and that's pretty much my dream. But um, when I when I was when I first met Martin. He introduced me to the course. Martin Sterling. Yeah, Martin Sterling, sorry. Um, So I was doing the wrestling, coming up there, doing all my weight training. And um, he he asked me if I wanted to do um, sumo. So I was like, um, I'll give it a try. I didn't really expect expect much out of it. Three months, three months training, went over there. I was totally unprepared. I think the only thing that really helped me was, um, was was our strength training. That was the only thing that really helped us. Technique so what do you mean, wise, three months later you were in a competition? Is that what Three months were in a competition. Like, <laughs> Jeez, no was, mucking around, no? No mucking around, man. It was crazy. Um, yeah, I was scared out of my mind. I was, <laughs> like, I was like, man, I'm just not prepared. And then I seen the, the Australians training. I was like, these guys have been training a lot longer than me. They're going to kick my butt. Mm. But I'm not going to go out there and give it to them. Yeah, that's pretty much where the journey journey started and so what happened yeah went over there that was um the um brisbane competition oh the 2009 so you've only been doing this for a short relatively short time wow yeah and then he asked me again if i want to defend my title this year and i was like yeah okay i'll defend my title (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay then yeah and um we were in the office part of um, Hetua, having a cordial, and um, when I first walked in, I noticed how tall and how buff you are. So, <laughs> how tall are you? Uh, about 6'6". Six, six. Is it rude to ask how much you weigh? No, no. Uh, 127 kgs at the moment. How um, important is um, physicality in, in, in sumo wrestling? Do you have to watch what you eat and train hard? Yeah, um... Oh, I I try to have six meals a day. Six meals. Take so you graze, or do you do you have light meals? Yeah, meal? just light, just light small meals. Uh, piece of um, chicken breast, steak, and then some veggies. Yeah, I try to eat six 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 meals a day, starting from in the morning. Morning, the morning meals usually a um, protein shake and some supplements. Off to the gym. After the after workout, 
some more supplements. Then an hour later, I'll have a meal. Then every two to three hours, I'll have a meal after that. Just nice small meals. Mm. But pretty much, yeah, packing on the, the protein. And what's your goal when it comes to nutrition? Is it to um, maintain your weight? Is it weight loss? Is it weight gain? I don't, I'm actually trying to gain weight, <laughs> but I'm actually losing weight at the moment. Are you? Yeah. Okay. I think I'm, I think I'm shitting off the the um, the uh, fat. And Are you? So does that mean you're overtraining? Oh, I wouldn't say I'm overtraining. Um, I suppose I've I've got a I haven't really think stepped up my carbs high enough, but um, and a little bit more fat. But I'm still trying to work out my, trying to actually suss out my diet yep. to where it suits me, where I'm actually got a lot of energy and I can still train. Because sometimes with the with your when you're first starting out on a diet, you start to have the real slums where you're just like tired and you can't be stuffed going to the gym. You just you just want to relax. Your body's in shock mode because yeah. it's like where's all the <laughs> KFC I had last last week. <laughs> so how who helps you to to do that, your family. Uh, it's mainly it's mainly me. Yeah, I, I, I do my own shopping. Um, I've got a grill. It's the the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> George Foreman grill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just chuck it on there, cook up my meals um, before I before I come to course. That's cool. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What have you? Um, what has Hetua? I mean, Hetua Sports and Rec Centre here in um, Wellington in um, Petone. You know, Martin Sterling's at the helm of, of the centre. You know, what has he taught you? Uh, what have you learnt being here? Seems like a real whānau friendly yeah, type I've of environment. Yeah, I've learned a lot about respect there. Um, uh, a lot about our, um, about Māori. He actually, um, he actually just got me onto a Māori course. I've, um, I've always shied away from, um, learning our language. Yeah. But yeah, um... I think it's seeing him speakers speaking speaking the language and how proud he is about being Maori. So yeah, watching him, I think that gives me a sense of pride mm. too. Why have you shied away from it, um, James? Uh, I can't. I don't really know why. I think I just I think maybe too much into the um, the English side of the European the European culture. What do your family think of your transformation? Oh, they love it. I love it. They're um, they're definitely excited about me learning Maori. They um, I actually started out when I was, I was actually a lot plump than I look now. Yeah, back so, last yeah, year. Every time, every time one of the cousins sees me, they're kind of like, "Sharks, you lost a lot of weight, <laughs> brother." Jesus, yeah. yeah. Now that's that's an awesome feeling too, when someone comes up to you and says, "Man, that hard work is paying off." Yeah. I mean that's that's cool to talk about, um, um, James. When you started out on this journey, um, I mean, were you overweight? Is that what I you were saying? I wouldn't say I was like fully overweight, but yeah, I wasn't in a, I wasn't in good shape, and I could have done a lot more running yeah. and a lot more, uh, lot more weights. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose your family have seen that physical transformation. Yeah. How has it affected you? What What can you do now that you possibly couldn't do when you started out on this journey of of being a sumo wrestler? And do a lot more press ups. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more press ups. Um, How much just, can you bench press? I think I asked Travis this question. Uh, at the last time my test was 157 kgs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. 
and um, so you can do so you can do more um, more than my body weight. Man, that's 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 mean. Um, James, tell me about your, your the future. I mean, you've just uh, the Oceania 2010 champs were held um, this year. What what's in store for the rest of the year? Uh, we're looking forward to Beijing because uh, that's where the uh, World Combat Games are going to be held. So we're going to be going over there for sumo to represent um, Oceania. Hopefully, uh, place somewhere in the top three. Hopefully. But uh, yeah, I know they've got a lot of um, strong competitors. Japan will be there. Mon- Mongolia is usually up among the top favourites. Just really good at their wrestling. Um, and the German boys, they're all bloody huge. Germany? Yeah, yeah, I got told they got one guy who's like 300 kgs. <laughs> and he's about 16 or something, 16, 7 foot. He's a big boy. And he would be in the open. <laughs> He'd be in the heavyweight division. I'm just hoping I don't come, again, uh, come up against them first. Now, when you, um, is it a round robin type of um, knockoff? I, th- I think, yeah, it is. It's just knockouts, yeah. You don't get a, I don't think you get a second chance because there'll be so many competitors. Yeah, they can't. Be. They can't do the whole go through everyone. Oh, no, actually, sorry, it's pulls. Oh, yeah. yeah, like pool A. So, pool. Yeah, pool A, pool B. The, the one who gets the most wins in that category goes to the next. Right. I think that's how it works. And this is where in Beijing? I think we leave on the 24th, I think, or 24th, something, something like that. 24th of? August, yeah. Man. And uh, everything's paid for, free accommodation. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. Is it tough financially? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at the moment. We just got to save um, save some money for our um, spending money. Bring back some of those little hats. <laughs> Travis might have said that. He's, he's been talking about it non-stop. Who's going from Hitua to um, Beijing? Me, uh, Travis, and uh, another girl by the name of Geneva Weber. She's, um, she's the... Uh, I think heavyweight woman's champ. She don't look like no heavyweight though. No. She's very strong. Yeah. Okay, so James, um, you're taking me on a tour, yeah? <laughs> yep. Sweet. Uh, this is the ring where most of the uh, Oceania sumo champs train. Um, we had a big, um, a big um, gathering of all the um, contestants the um, day before, and we all trained in this um, this ring here. But it actually had a doyo as well. What's a doyo? A doyo is like the um, traditional. Um, oh, sumo wrestling circle. Sumo wrestling, yes. The nice big rope. It's supposed to be a rope, but we got um, like rubber, rubber and vacuum. Not a traditional one. Traditional um, sumo, they have um, uh, like clay. Clay? Yeah, yeah the wrestle on clay. It's pretty solid too. It's a lot softer than a traditional one. Um, Sumering. So, um, how many matches have you fought in here? A lot? Um, pro wrestling, yeah, quite a bit. Um, but uh, sumo, zero. Uh, besides training. Besides training. Besides training. Training's the only time, yeah, we actually use the ring. So, you're a professional wrestler as well, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I've got to remember that you don't only do sumo wrestling, <laughs> you do professional wrestling. Do you have some sort of name? Like uh, Ultimate Warrior? Tarkade. Tycade. Tycade. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking to Tycade. <laughs> okay, so at the moment we've got um, 
James, who is um, uh, teaching Damien how to um, do the the training that they go through. So James, do you read like muscle magazines to get the yeah, latest? And I just got this new book, um, strength. What's it called? It's a strength training. It's a strength training book. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's awesome, eh? So you're pretty much self-taught. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. And so how much weight have we got down here? Uh, Looks like twenty. Is it twenty-five? Twenty-five kgs. 25 kgs. And do you mostly do free weights? It's not through machines? I, um, we've only got pretty much... Free um, weights? Yeah. Yep. So we've, we've got a couple of machines, but, yeah. Cool. It's, um, more chest. So, superset. So we've got James doing um, a superset um, demo. And so how many... Um, so probably about <coughs> 10 to 15 reps. 10 to 15 reps and once, how many and sets? straight after, so we go, it's about 5, 6 sets, sorry. So your, your goal is to shock the muscle into... And you'll feel it straight away. So how many of those did you do? Oh, right. <laughs> there was about 6 at the most. How important is cardio? cardio. It's, it's probably not. As Im, I must. I must admit, I'm. I'm pretty um, shocking on the cardio part. <laughs> I'd rather do the weights than do the cardio, but yeah, I'll probably do about ten minutes before and ten minutes after. Kia ora, James Mihaere at our website radioNZ.co.nz forward slash We've got some links and pictures of James, who's even demonstrating his bench pressing. Goodbye. And I'll be following James too, as you heard. He'll be heading to Beijing for the World Combat Games. Good luck to the wrestlers at Hetua Sport and Recreation Centre. Anita D. O'Carroll, who we heard earlier in the programme, she reviewed the latest album from Fat Freddy's Drop. Here she is with this week's Whakatauki. So I relate this Whakatauki back to um, the raft, Waiata in Fat Freddy's Drop, um, Drops album. Although my people may not be many, we are ready for the storm to come. Ka whawhai tonu mātou ake ake ake. Tēnā tātou katoa, ko Dio Carol tōku nei ingoa, hiuri tēnei no taranaki, ko ngā tirua nui, ko ngā ruhinerangi, me te atiawanga iwi. Tēnā koutou. Lock it down for the month of Pipiri, that's June. We've got all the action from this weekend's Pao Pao Pao, the Māori music extravaganza happening at Pipitia Marae in Wellington. And remember, next week we have our second Whakatefetefa in our documentary series in which I'm tackling the subject of Māori and the justice system. And what we have is archival recordings from Aroha Teri back in the 1990s when she confronted Kaumatua about sexual abuse and the hearings they would have on Marae around the Waikato area. I'm with Moana Jackson, who in the 1980s advocated for a separate marae justice system, before I move on to youth hearings taking place at Te Poho Rawiri Marae in Gisborne. Kauwe wanewane iwi mā whakatefatefa next week. E te iwi ko mutu tēnei hōtaka a te heikā. That's us for another show. He mihi tēnei ki ngā kaira wikiwiki mihini me ngā kai kōrero. Hoki mai hei tērā wiki. Mauri ora tātou katoa.